I mean, it's one of those things that people don't want to talk about. It's like founders motivated, motivated by money. If I wasn't motivated by money, I wouldn't have done it. Like I wouldn't have gone and taken the leap to say, right, this is a real business. I'm going to take this money to grow this business into worth more money. It's not because I was driven so passionately about what we're trying to solve. I am passionate about that. It's enabled this whole thing in my life. But I can't sit here and talk to people and pretend that it's not a financial motivation. That's definitely why lots of people start companies. And I think people should just be more honest about that. I don't think that's an issue. Um, so I always had, I remember years ago, me and my dad, there was a, a yacht somewhere in, in uh, Mallorca where we go on holiday. And he, he had a similar list when he was younger, which was how to get his dream car. Go and be a lawyer, do this, do that, do that. So he did that, did actually buy the car, but he did the list. So I had a how to buy this super yacht when I was 15 or something. And it was go and be an investment banker, work seven till seven for 10 years and <laughs> do all that stuff. So I, I always had an, a drive of one day I want to be wealthy or generate some wealth somewhere. Welcome to another edition of Built to Sell Radio. My name is John Warlow, and this is the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight when it comes to selling your company. And today's episode is with a guy named Ben Tossel, who sold MakerPad to Zapier. Cool story. Before we get to it, though, just a couple of announcements. First of all, all of the show notes for Ben's episode can be found at builttosell.com. We have really upgraded our show notes in the last few weeks. So you'll find links to all the things we talk about, the different capital raising structures, the different companies, all of that can be found at builttosell.com on Ben's episode page. So check that out. I also want to make a special shout out to Christian Koldea. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that name correctly. He gave us a great review recently on iTunes. He says, I have to tip my hat to John. This podcast is just packed with so much value. After stumbling upon the show a year ago, I've actually approached decisions I've made in business in a new way. Highly recommend to an entrepreneur who finds themselves in the trenches of building a business. So Christian, thank you so much for that very generous review. And if you're wondering how you can support the show, the very best thing you can do is give us a review on whatever platform you listen to us on. That goes a long way to helping people find the show. And obviously, while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Okay, let's get into this story of Ben Tossel and his sale of MakerPad to Zapier. A couple things to look out for in this one, and that is the difference between a maker versus a manager. You may have heard of this concept before. It was originally a blog post written by a guy named Paul Graham back in 2009, but he distinguishes between our activities where we are creating something, a product, a piece of content, and managing, where we are making sure that you know the trains run on time in our companies. And I think in this case, you can clearly tell very early that my guest Ben is very much a maker and how selling his company enabled him to remain a maker and not become a manager. So an interesting thought experiment for you to have on your own time around whether you're a maker versus a manager and how you structure your day accordingly. Ben will also talk about how to identify a product idea with the potential to become a full-fledged business. He talks about how he leveraged 
Twitter to build his company, how he raised capital without going down the road of dealing with venture capital. He also chose to offer a lifetime membership instead of a subscription or at least in uh, next to a subscription. And that's a very controversial idea. And Ben has some strong opinions on that. He also talks about how to value your company and how that might be different in the eyes of an investor versus an acquirer. Here to tell you the entire story is Ben Tossel. Ben Tossel, welcome to Build the Cell Radio. Thank you for having me. How on earth did did you come up with this idea for MakerPad? I mean, take me into tell me the story of this company. It was by accident. <laughs> I was working at a company called Product Hunt, um, and that's basically a website where people in tech launch their new project. So it could be a big company like Google releasing a new app, or it could be a single developer launching a color picker type website. Um, so I worked there for a number of years and sort of a victim of my surroundings. Everyone was building stuff and there's all these new projects everyone could build. And I was like, I really want to, I want to do that. Like I want to build my own thing, but I'm occupational hazard of sorts. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and I'm just, I'm not technical. I've tried to learn to code numerous times. It just doesn't gel with me. I can't figure it out. I always get to a point where I'm stuck and I just can't push past that. But whilst I was at product hunt, I saw companies like Webflow and Zapier and Typeform. And I was like, well, that helps me. That tool helps me build a website. That tool helps me connect two apps together. And this thing can sort of help me accept payments. So I thought, well, I can string those together to make it look and feel like a sort of quote, real product. Um, So that's what I started doing. I started thinking, oh, well, I think one of the first things I built was a, a directory for Alexa skills. So anytime you ask Alexa, what's the weather, you could try all these different weird ones. So I, that was one of the first things I built um, and sort of just got a bug from there. And I was like, I want to build more of these and doing lots and lots. I thought, well, well, this could be a business. This could be a business. And I must have, must have tried 50 plus things. Um, no one bought anything ever <laughs> of those things. Um, so, so the Alexa like, directory is yeah, weirdly, zero no one, yeah, no one cared about that. Um, but people always felt felt like they were interested in what I was doing. But when no one was paying, I was like, okay, you all seem interested. What are you actually interested in? If you're not buying anything, and it was just interested how you built that. If you're not technical, like how did you use? How have you got this website? How does it do that? If you don't know how to code. So it's the whole, the old, those who can't do teach. I thought, right, I will create tutorials. I just film my screen. I can come up with these crazy ideas and build them, just record myself and then put that up behind a paywall. Um, so that's what I started doing. And so you're, so to be clear, you were explaining how you can, you can connect a website building product that doesn't require code to a, an e-commerce. So you can accept payment like a Stripe or a, yeah, something exactly. like that. So, so here's yeah, so how like, I would connect those two things and you yeah. built a, a tutorial of that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the sort of building my own product was here's a website I've built with card. It's a very simple one page builder. Um, if you want to view my tutorials, you click here to pay, and that would link you to a type form, like form product that would let you put in your credit card. 
an automation would send you a, hey, welcome to MakerPad. The password is banana. Enter that into this password protected page. That's where you can see the videos. And it was basically that, three pieces. And that was, yeah, those sorts of things could be for any type of content business, right? It could be a blog, uh, news news articles and things like that. So, so yeah, that's how I started. And the first piece of, well, first piece of feedback I got when I launched it was, I love the idea of this, but the guy doing the videos is so dreadfully dull. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, oh no, this is a really bad, bad start. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was one... One negative in a in a sea of positives at that point, and I just thought, well, maybe I'll just try and sound more enthusiastic when I'm when I'm doing these videos. But I mean, it's a very difficult thing when you start creating tutorials. But yeah, that's how we all sort of kicked off the makeup journey. Um, yeah, and this was 2019, so this is relatively recent. Is that right? Yeah. So it was officially launched in January 2019. Um, I'd had a few blog posts previously when I was working at the um, product hunt that talked about, look, you can build MVPs without code, sign up here if you want to know more, just trying to build up some sort of audience. Um, I think I have a few hundred people on that list. So when I said, look, I'm launching this, tutorials to teach you how to do this. If you want lifetime access for, I think it was like $50, just sign up here. And it was a type form again, taking those payments. And I think 15 people paid straight away. And I thought, no one's ever paid for anything before. This feels like something. So yeah, January, 2019, uh, MakerPad was officially launched and officially a business, I suppose. Describe for me what it, it felt like to receive your first order confirmation. Relief probably was one of the first things. Um, and it just, there was something about MakerPad that was, very different to everything else I'd launched before. Like I'd, I'd had things that I'd launched that weren't businesses. They were just, here's a directory of marketing resources. So I sort of curated things like that and people really liked it. And it was like, cool, that's something people have used. Um, but having a paying customer say, yes, I want this, even before I had any videos was like, wait a second. It was sort of a, a stop and look at it and think, is there something bigger here that I didn't really foresee happening. And I think that's really what happened at that point. I thought, right, actually, this could be the thing. Like, forget all those 50 other things I've tried to do. This actually could be the thing. And I could do this as a one-to-many business. Like, I could be a one-person business with many, many customers. And I could just do the same thing, record stuff, put it out there. And that could be a very lucrative business, I thought. Um, so that's what that's what it was, and yeah, MakerPad generally was. There was a pull from the market rather than me pushing it. Like I didn't have to get people to please sign up for this, please sign up for this. It was much the opposite, actually. That's really interesting. I want to explore the pull factor in a moment. Uh, before I do that, I, I've got a question. You're working at Product Hunt. You're you're on their payroll, so to speak. How did it? How did you build up your own personal list of two or three hundred people around this blog post? Like, was did they give you permission to to do that, or was that sort of in your own time? Or how did how did you sort of carve out those two or three hundred email addresses without? Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's one of those difficult things where 
you go and work for a tech company and you want to work on side projects. And I think the CEO of that company is probably thinking, okay, well, you can, as long as it doesn't overlap in something we might do, could do, maybe one day do. So I had a few side projects at that time that I had to step away from or I couldn't do because it was like, that's too close or that's too close so that we could do that one day. And I was getting frustrated with that and I was just, I couldn't shake the bug of, yeah, but I can build stuff now. I figured out how to build stuff. So I have to do it. I have to like, and I think when I look back on it, I was waiting for one of these things to have that pull moment and someone pay me for something. So I could go, sorry, I've got to go now. I've got a business to attend to that I created. I've got to go over there. Um, but at the time I didn't, I was like, oh, can't you just let me do these things on the side? And really Ryan, the CEO of Product Hunt at the time, had a very similar story. He was working somewhere else and tried Product Hunt as a side project. That started gaining some traction. He knew that, like, I think his boss sort of said, look, you've got to go and explore this. You've got to go and explore your thing. And Ryan did the same with me. He was like, look, I can see you want to launch stuff. You're trying to do these things. You should go and do that. You should go and do that. Like, you have to do that. So I was sort of forced, like, forced hand a bit and just thought, right, I have to make it work now. Cause I'm without a job. So I had like six months or so without a job consulting and doing things like that, that I was like, I've got to make something work. So you've got uh, the first 50, excuse me, the first 15 customers who paid a life for a lifetime membership of $50. Yeah. So you've got a, a bit of a very like proof that it could work. Where does it go from there? I just, was that annoying person on Twitter saying, Hey, I figured this thing out. Hey, I figured this thing out. And one of the, basically it was tutorials. I, I got to sit in my living room thinking, what can I try and figure out how to build without code? And I thought, Ooh, uh, like Airbnb, like that's not done. If I could build an Airbnb replica without code, would that turn some heads to, Ooh, I should like go and watch that video. I, I want to know how to do that too. So things like that started just started pushing them out on Twitter and they, some of them got really like a lot of traction. That so Airbnb. you would pick a business model that was working like an Airbnb where you've got a, you've got to publish a picture of the, the house. You've got to yeah. accept payment. You've got, there's all, there's all these elements and you were doing it without being a coder. You're yeah. effectively replicating that. Yeah. And I, I think you, you sort of get to a point, I think when you've built many things where you can recognize, okay, this site is very big, very impressive, millions of users, millions in funding, but really the components are quite simple. I know I'm dumbing down a lot of like, I don't mean to take that out of Airbnb, but it's like they have a landing page, they have like a product listing page, and they have a booking page. You can build those things separately in no-code tools, and you can put them together to have a similar type of experience. Like someone can come in, view a property, and book it and you don't need any code like to be able to write code anyway to do that that piece so that's what i was trying to do is everyone looks at the big startup vc like stories as the goal but really okay you can build airbnb for dog homes like without needing all of that you just build it like this and then go and get your customers so you would use twitter as the primary sort of pub uh publication like how many twitter followers did you have when you started you had 15 customers you know two or three hundred emails like 
how quickly did your Twitter following scale? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I had, I think I had a few thousand at that point because I worked at Product Hunt. So people had to follow <laughs> me to like say, hey, can you help me launch this business on, on the site? Um, so that definitely helped. And then I think it just, it must've gone quite rapidly from there. Um, when I was putting out these videos that would basically be shared by like Mark Andreessen, I retweeted the Airbnb one, for example, I remember that. Um, so that just happened quite rapidly from, from there, I think. Um, I need to actually go back and check the numbers and see, see what that growth was like. Yeah. So give me, give me the numbers. Like how many, so in 2019, you had a couple thousand, maybe 2020, 2021, 2022, just to give me the ballpark number of Twitter followers. Yeah. I mean, it's, have. it's around 44,000 now. Um, so it's probably, yeah, about half that last year and the year before even further down. So yeah, it would have been tens of thousands a year, I think. Got it. Okay. So that's the primary way you are you are driving people to watch these tutorials, but you're putting them behind a paywall. Yeah. Yeah, that was it. That's helpful for sure. When did you make the decision to go from the lifetime payment to a recurring payment? This is something I always battled with. So at the time of launching MakerPad, I also had a side job helping create the community for what's known as Calm Fund. So they are funding for bootstrappers, essentially, um, alternative to VC funding. So I was helping them. So I had a sort of day job and I had this side project that was doing well, doing up to 20, 30K a month in revenue. Um, but of course it was lifetime payments or we did do some sort of tool partnerships. So companies like Zapier, Airtable would pay us sometimes up to 10K for the year to be listed on MakerPad for me to make some tutorials about them, things like that. Um, and then it was when I, don't, I was sort of scarred by all these projects that went nowhere that I didn't know that I wanted to do a business. I was like, this is great as a little side gig. I'm not sure I want to change that up yet. And it's pretty Too, lucrative, like, like ten or $20,000 yeah. a month. I mean, when you've got exactly. a day job, like that's, <laughs> that's a pretty yeah. lucrative little, little stream of uh, cash. Yeah, exactly. And, that, and I, was, I was very happy with that. And I loved working at Calm Fund. And it was, um, I think it was about the August uh, of 2020, 2019, sorry, that Tyler, who runs Calm Fund, was like, look, do you want to go full time on this thing? Because it's making a lot of revenue. A lot of the revenue is more than a lot of our companies that we've invested in because they invest quite early. If you want to go full time, just know that we will we'll be one of your, but we're happy to lead the round. We'll, we'll give you that first check. And I was like, Oh, this is one of those things. I'm like, right. I've, I've got to make a decision here. And I think around the same time I had two companies who acquire other companies. One of them is Andrew Wilkinson from tiny capital. Um, and one is Kevin from SureSwift capital. So SureSwift capital are investors in calm fund also. Um, so those two people separately messaged to say, hey, makeup is going great. When can I buy it? And I was like, there's a few signs here that telling me I need to, I need to actually go and go full time. So I said, okay, let's do it. Let's let's raise it a bit of funding. So I feel feel like I've got some something to fall back on, I guess. Um, I can hire a few people and, and go full time. So yeah, October, September, October 2019, I raised 350k. Sorry, from, 350K? Yeah, 350K from uh, Ernest and then a bunch of angels, Andrew Wilkinson being one of those, 
um, as well. So, yeah. How much we equity did you give up? Uh, it was, I must have been around 15%, something around that number, I think. Um, wow. So they're, so they're placing a pretty high valuation on this company already. How, how, is, how much of your revenue were you doing at that time in October, 2019, roughly? Well, it was, yeah, like I said, it was around 20 to 30K a month. Um, and, and not recurring, just one-time payments. Not recurring. Yeah. Just one-time payments. That's a pretty fat multiple for, <laughs> yeah. for, for a couple hundred grand in a year I think in revenue. I do. I, I think revenue. it was that. Yeah. I need, I need to check that because, because Calm Fund basically invest on the basis of, um, it's a shared earnings agreement. So it means you take the money for a year, you have that money to deploy it, you sort of hire people and, and grow. And then after that year, you start paying them back a percentage based on the money they invested in you. And it's sort of a revenue share back to them. Um, and then their percentage of ownership comes down as you're paying back some of that capital. Um, so that's how it started. So I can't remember exactly the, the equity piece at that time, but I think it was, it was something around that, I think. Got it. So you've got a war chest now. So where does it go from there? So I started hiring a couple of people from the community. So it grew quite, quite quickly. And sorry, you, you were asking me about the, the lifetime payment. I went off on a tangent. But mm. it, so it was at that point of, right, we've got to raise, raise some money. This is going to be a real, quote, again, business. Um, can I survive off lifetime memberships? Or should I listen to some people, some customers saying, you should do monthly, you should do yearly subscriptions. And the thing I really didn't want to do is focus on churn or worry about churn or think about, I've got to keep these customers coming back. I'm basically like competing against their Netflix subscriptions. Like all of that felt counterintuitive to me for the site I was building. I'm building something that is a learning platform. Life gets in the way, work gets in the way, anything just gets in the way of you learning. If you don't then learn within that four weeks chances are your churn and that's i don't want that to be up to me to then try and compete with all that so just i felt a bit messy and i thought the lifetime and even why we started with yearly was it's cash flow like you get that upfront cash straight away the value is probably already given to the user within the first couple of weeks then everything else from then for them would feel like a bonus. So that's how I wanted to be treated as a customer. And I know that lots of these other companies or like SaaS businesses, nothing's like that. So I thought if it's just slightly different and different enough, different enough to be like a set it and forget it type payment, then I thought that would be good. And it worked really well for us actually. So what triggered you to, to change or to, to add the, Monthly and, and annual offers. Well, I think it was we we tr only tried monthly for a couple of months, so there's very small uptake on that. And then again, it was the natural the churning happened. I think people basically wanted access to one tutorial or one like course, so they pay that, do it, and then and drop off. Um, but I think around that time, October September 2019, we did yearly, and then at that point, I raised the prices of lifetime again. So we I was always increasing the lifetime. I think from the January must have been $50 up to the 
June, July of that 2019, it was around $169. And then I changed it to 217, then 297, just completely making these numbers up and thinking, right, what do I think I can sort of um, charge? And then brought in the, the yearly around, I can't remember where we started with the yearly, but I just made sure, okay, if I think yearly is going to be at 150, where do I think I need to price lifetime? Because again, thinking about that churn, are people going to stick around for three years? That's a long time like with a new site. I'd really wonder. So I think we ended up with lifetime being $600 and then yearly being around 250 to 297. Um, and still most people would go for the lifetime. Most people chose that. So that was a, yeah, I mean, a huge credit to everyone who actually believed in us and actually did all that because yeah, we wouldn't have got to where we are today without, without those customers. What proportion of your, your revenue, you said the majority was lifetime. Can you give me a rough split in terms of. Yeah. So it was, so we had, we did have the semi recurring piece with these businesses who would pay to be listed and have tutorials. So that was about 40% of our revenue was coming from these businesses. And then 60% of the revenue was, between lifetime and yearly. And I think it was about 70% were uh, lifetime subscribers. Got it. Got it. And how was your churn on the annual? Did, did it come to bear that most people churned out after one year? Or were, you, were you able to track that? Yeah, I think, again, it's probably one of the things I didn't track too much because I didn't want to get bogged down in it. Um, there was definitely people who come and like not subscribe or people coming saying, Oh, well I paid for a year and now I've been auto charged. I'm like, yeah, that's how it happens. That's how it works type of thing. Um, <laughs> the way your subscription works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I, I can't really remember the, the churn, but I don't think, I feel like the lifetime was definitely the best, the best thing for us to do. Um, and if I had to do it all again, I would, I would definitely stick with lifetime like early on especially. Gosh, that's a controversial statement, certainly in the whole kind of content marketing, SaaS marketing world that, you know, everybody has moved to these monthly payments or these annual payments and the, the lifetime feels like a, a bit of a, uh, an albatross or a commitment, a legacy commitment. I'd be curious to know, and we'll get to it in a moment, but when your conversations with Zapier happened, I'd love to I'd love to know how they thought about the lifetime obligation. So let's let's put a pin in that and come come back to that. Make sure yeah. we ad address that when when we get there. So give give me a sense of where the revenue is. So at the beginning, you were 20, 30K a, a month uh, and you raised 350 grand. Like take us into 20, you know, the same time in 2020, we're, we're, what's your trajectory looking like? Yeah, we basically doubled, doubled revenue the next year. So it's about 200K, around two, 200, 300K the first year, and then 400 to 480 or something, I think was the, the following year. And what about the year after that, 2021? We were acquired. <laughs> so that's when it all happened. And uh, yeah, we sort of changed up what we were doing and yeah, we don't disclose the revenue for that. Um, but it was, yeah, it's been, it's been good. We, we're running courses and things now, so it's a slightly different model. Got it. Got it. But so the year before you acquired, it was, it was, you were sort of four, four, four and four and change, four fifty something yeah. like that. 
Got yeah. it. Got it. So still on a revenue basis, a relatively small company. How many employees did you have at that time? I think we got up to something like 14, 15. Um, and it was a mix of contractors and full-time employees. We only had maybe five or so full-time. Um, but we liked working with contractors and we had very long relationships with contractors who are doing 20 hours, 20 hours a week. Um, yeah, so it was... I think that was the the bit I found the most difficult is switching from the maker schedule to the manager schedule. I think that's what the book explain because people the maker versus manager and we'll put that in the show notes is a great blog post. But explain your interpretation of what you mean by maker versus manager. Yeah, so the maker is like the person who wants to build stuff. Just like the default, you will build stuff, and I've been in that mode since I can remember, I want to build stuff, then I could build stuff. And then I was just building lots of stuff. And then you become this, oh, I've got a team. I've got to like check in with this person. Are they okay with doing their things? I've got to make sure that's delegated. I've got to make sure this is, you're then a sort of a people person managing those people. Um, but really my go-to thing in life is, building stuff like i would always default if you put me in a room for a week with a laptop i would end up building websites or seeing if i could build this thing could build that thing so that was a real that's my biggest struggle i think with building a company was i've got to sort of grow up or switch or think about this thing rather than that thing um and i think that became more apparent as makeupad was going on and sort of like, yeah, we were growing, customers were growing, but it was getting to that point in sort of mid 2020 where I was like, what is this business? We were trying lots of different things. We were trying the, so we try and do the B2B route and like have these companies listed on our directory and we do tutorials for them. That sort of feels like an agency business. Do we just go full, go for the customers? That feels like a big Coursera, Udemy type business that, requires a lot of venture capital there's lots of churn you sort of expect it and i was in that like i've never run a company before i've got a bunch of people we've got to stay alive what's this business doing that sort of crisis mode of what lots of people i I imagine go through also um and that was my like i don't know what to do because i'm a maker i'm not like this business operator yet um so that was a that was my big my biggest struggle i think what did you do to reconcile that struggle? Um, we tried lots of things. We built different things and we we're waiting for that pull moment again. I wanted to try these different things to see like, okay, that's the obvious path that we need to go. And even I'd have conversations because when VCs know you've raised one thing and it's going well and you're sort of looked at as one of the leaders in the space, there's lots of, let's just have a chat type conversations happening. Um, and I sort of used them as, oh, okay, if if we were going to raise money, what would you want to see? Like, what's, what is it? And it's, we want those subscriptions. We'd want to see that growing. You want to see the churn at 5% or whatever it was they'd say. And it was very much like, okay, this, there has to be a decision made here. I can't just go through sort of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's not quite as simple a business as I first intended it to be. Like we 
we need to do something or figure something out. And I don't don't think I ever did, actually. I think it came it came around when we started chatting to Zapier that I was like, I feel like this is the best, best thing that this business, our business needed. When you're having those chats with, with venture capitalists, are you starting to get a sense of what the business could be worth one day? It's difficult because I think you've almost got to take those conversations with VCs with a pinch of salt because they're not as hung up on valuations as someone who was actually analyzing it, analyzing your business to buy it would be. Like they're more, oh yeah, don't worry about 10 million valuation, 20 million valuation. It doesn't really matter in a venture capital world because it takes one swing for that to be, to almost not matter that yours was valued at 20 million or something. So I, I was becoming very aware of the conversations I was having, what they were saying, what other companies are raising, like knowing that when we raised, it was a big valuation that really was just sort of was given to us. And it really sort of put a spin on, okay, are these valuations because it's the venture capital game playing or is it because the business is worth that and that's how they analyze that and that's why they are those valuations. And I think it's actually the former is, yeah, we just, we need looking for a certain percentage of your company. If that means it's this much, that's fine. That's what it is. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting process to, to go through and see. Interesting. So, so you're, you're delineating between how someone might value the business for the purposes of investment versus acquisition. And, and what you're saying, if they're investing is it's, it only works if it's a massive home run. So what the valuation is somewhat less of a priority at yeah. that moment in, in your mind. What about for the purposes of acquisition? Are, are you, I mean, you came from a day job at Product Hunt, right? Like you would have had a salary and, you know, uh, a normal kind of life as, as yeah. 99% yeah, yeah. of the world has, right? And then all of a sudden, like a year later, are you starting to get the sense that, hold on a second, I, I, I might have this, like an asset that could be worth like, like a considerable amount of money? Yeah, well, I, I always wanted, I mean, it's one of those things that people don't want to talk about. It's like founders motivated, motivated by money. If I wasn't motivated by money, I wouldn't have done it. Like I wouldn't have gone and taken the leap to say, right, this is a real business. I'm going to take this money to grow this business into worth more money. It's not because I was driven so passionately about what we're trying to solve. I am passionate about that. It's enabled this whole thing in my life, but I can't sit here and talk to people and pretend that it's not a financial motivation. That's definitely why lots of people start companies. And I think people should just be more honest about that. I don't think that's an issue. Um, so I always had, I remember years ago, me and my dad, there was a, a yacht somewhere in, in uh, Mallorca where we go on holiday and he, he had a similar list when he was younger, which was how to get his dream car, go and be a lawyer, do this, do that, do that. So he did that, did actually buy the car, but he did the list. So I had a how to buy this super yacht when I was 15 or something. And it was go and be an investment banker, work seven till seven for 10 years and <laughs> do all that stuff. So I, I always had an, a drive of one day I want to be wealthy or generate some wealth somewhere. So it was always in me and I was then 
went down the, I want to be in a startup, I want to start my own thing, I want to do this, do that. And as I was going through the process, or you, you launch something, you see it work, you have team members, lots of it changes again. Like you almost have these mini cycles of, I don't actually want to run a company of 300 people. Like that sounds awful to me. And I don't think I got have the skills at this moment in time to, to do that or want to do that. I'm still a maker. I'm still a builder. I still want to sit here all day making stuff. I'm happy with that. Like that's, that's what I'd like to do. Um, so yeah, that, that changes over time. You have these conversations with VCs about, okay, if you want to go and do a series A, these are sort of numbers you need to do. You need to be thinking about the churn. You need to be thinking about subscriptions. And I'm, th- and I'm there sat there going, that's not what I'm aiming to do. I'm not aiming to like run and operate a good business that might be nothing in a few years. I want to have like, it wants to be my business. I want to own most of it. And I want to have be in control of this. And I want to have a good outcome that changes mine and my entire family's life. Like I do want What was that, that to you? It would have been, I don't know, actually, it's difficult to say, but I think it's probably like seven, eight figures would have been in my head, right, right, I've made it. And that's like, that's the freedom. I can do whatever I want in my life. And I think I'd be fine. I know that that number is different for everyone. And mine might be much higher than other people think. But I do think that that's where I was, that's where I was aiming at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because for you, seven, eight figures, I mean, there's a big range there. So I'm assuming it's closer to the eight than the seven, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll interpret that. Um, would have given you freedom to go back to being a maker, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the thing is, if I was at that time, before I even started to make it, but if someone just said, here's $10 million, what are you going to do now? I'd probably say oh, I'll sit on my computer and just like build websites and figure out how to build stuff without code. Like <laughs> That's what I'd end up doing. So it was one of those that, yeah, I mean, if you can do both of those things or you can still be a builder and maker, that's really, I'm still trying to focus on, do I like my day-to-day stuff? I don't want to still have six hours of people managing time and I can build for two hours. Yeah, I want it to be the complete opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And I think a lot of people listening will get that as well. So, so you've got all the, you know, the VC saying, this could be a juggernaut. This could be amazing. You got to switch to a church. You got to switch to a recurring revenue model. We got to be a SaaS company. We got to worry, manage a churn. You got to hire a CFO. You got to hire this team. You got to, let's, I'm going to throw a bunch of money at this. Come on, Ben, you can, you can do it. And you're like, that's <laughs> that sounds terrible yeah. to me. Uh, yeah. Everything about that sounds like, exactly where I don't want to be. So you're a maker as you're in your own words. And so that's interesting. I'd be curious to know, you mentioned you raised money from Calm Fund. Um, and I mean, they, they don't invest in companies presumably to, to have not have good outcomes. So what was that sort of narrative from them? Were they saying, Come on, grow up, Ben. You you gotta you gotta be put your big boy pants on and here become an entrepreneur because we want an outcome here. We want to we want to we want to monetize this investment. We don't want you tinkering around making stuff. We want to build a company. Did you get that sort of pressure from them? Not at all. Um, 
And it's more of a support network because other entrepreneurs who are often solo founders are also the portfolio. So you end up chatting with them. You re- realize you all have the same problems. Oh, there's an employee doing this. I want them to do that. There's all of the same things and you sort of get a feel for it. And really, Calm Fund are trying to invest in like a number of winners rather than we've taken all these swings and one of them will work out, but most of them probably won't. It's the complete like opposite they all of these companies are growing and growing in a calm way in a sustainable way that means that the revenue that they're generating goes back into the calm fund because that's how the agreement works and if that's if that's how that works like their model is successful if companies have an exit or or they go on to follow they follow on vc funding and then go and have a big exit somewhere else that's like that's the outlier for them that's not really part of their playbook, but is welcomed, I'm sure. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. So they, they really are a different kind of investor and with yeah. with a very different model. Fantastic. So what happens next? I mean, maybe talk a little bit about the... And I, I did a little bit of homework before this interview, and there was a tweet you uh, you made which caught the attention of some, um, I guess the CEO of, of, of Zapier Wade, if I've got that right. So maybe talk a little bit about the tweet and we'll put the tweet in the show notes. So you, so folks can, can get it, but what did you, uh, what did you say in the tweet? Yeah. So Makepad was a partner of make, uh, Zapier was a partner of Makepads, uh, whilst we were doing some, some stuff. Um, so a lot of people won't have ever heard of Zapier. So maybe just explain what Zapier does. So folks, folks know. Yeah. So it's, it's essentially an automation tool that connects thousands of apps and tools together to automate your business processes. So, so if you want Stripe to if, talk to HubSpot or. Yeah. If you have a customer come in, you want to mark them as a sales lead, and then you want to send an automated email and put them into pipe drive, all of that sort of stuff happens automatically. Um, yeah. And they, yeah, they're a huge, huge business. And they were a partner because they are sort of the glue that hold all of these other no-code tools together. So I use them extensively in all of my tutorials and running of MakerPad. So we had a relationship there and I'd spoken to Wade a couple of times through Twitter and we did a podcast or so together. I met him in San Francisco because Webflow put on this big no-code conference. We had a dinner, group dinner. Um, And I think just the more we spoke, we realized our vision for what the future of no-code looked like. They were just very much aligned. It was just like a, both of us sort of thinking, how is this not the normal thing? Like, why why is everyone told to learn to code? Or like, this is the easiest, most, most efficient way to do automations and building anything. So that, like we both want to just get that out to as many people as possible. The term no code may be new to folks, but essentially it, it just means making things without necessarily being a, a, like a coder effectively. Yeah. And it's the name is counterintuitive and I don't want to have any association with creating that no code term, but that might have, might've been sort of given to me, but it's one of those that code is being generated. It's just, you're not having to write it. You don't need to understand it. You can just, drag and drop drag and drop a few elements on a page to create your website for example it's very much like my parents could do it like anyone could do it children can do it we've seen we've seen that happen often so it's yeah it's the least technical version of how you can build a website how do you can build right. anything great so you you tweeted out 
and Wade saw it, this note of, was, of the most common tools used. Yeah, so I did no, I did a tweet around the most common tools or the most popular tools on Makerpad. And Zapier was one of them, Airtable was one of them, Webflow, et cetera. And someone else from the community, so I think, picked up on that and then tweeted and tagged Airtable and Zapier and said, Airtable and Zapier, something, something, no code. One of them should buy Makerpad as soon as possible. And I responded to it saying it'd be picking, but they'd be like picking between one of my parents. And Wade emailed me to say, Hey, did you see this tweet? We should have a chat. And I was like, Yeah, I did actually see this tweet. Did you see my response? Yeah, let's have a chat. Um, so we went from there, really. And that's, yeah, that's how the, the process started. I love that line, pick it between my parents. That's awesome. And so where <laughs> does it go from there? So, what, what, did, how did Wade approach it? Yes. So Wade was um, just open and said, look, yeah, this would be a great, a great partnership. We can definitely see why there's a beneficial interest for us to sort of merge forces. And is that something you're interested in? Is it something you've ever thought about all of that stuff? And if so, like, let's, let's explore it. Let's come out with some numbers and how many customers you have and revenue and things like that. And then we can, we can go from there. So that's exactly what we did. I was sort of like in that moment of, is this a real business? Am I trying to swing for the fences and be a billion dollar company? I don't want 300 employees. VCs would push you this way, that way. And then this sort of shining opening came and I thought, hmm, I've never actually thought of the alternative of trying to raise money and trying to do that business. It was, wait, we could be part of this huge no-code company, probably the leader in the space. And what would that look like? What would I want us as MakePad and me as a maker, not manager type person? How, how would that whole thing fit together? And what would that look like? And I really, I had to really think about that because I was like going through this whole moment of figuring out what I don't want. I really wanted to then put down, this is what I do want and how I do want to do stuff is... Like I wanted to still run Makepad independently. I don't want to just be merged into a company and sort of dissolved. And then you're within this company of 500 employees that I've never been at a company like that before. Um, so there's a few things like that. I sort of was like, well, we want to, we, we do want to push this message and push out this education to as many people as possible. If that's really our aim. And if we don't have to focus on like staying alive paying people, like getting that money, swapping time for money type scenarios, which is what we're previously doing to, to stay alive, then what could we do? What are the options? Like what, what would we do together? Um, so then Wade and I was having, having those chats and, and then it was just very much like, okay, we wouldn't need to worry about this thing, but more we can look at opening up the no code courses and we can have that push out to Zapier's customers. And there's, thousands and thousands of new avenues we can explore there and get this to the hands of more people. And really that was the most attractive thing to me. It was growth without the sort of asterisks of powered by VC or the growth but without- You strike me as like a very independent soul. Like you keep saying, I don't want 300 employees. You're a product hunt and you're like launching all this stuff. <laughs> and they're, you know, like, they're like- it, Ben, you can't keep launching these these products because you got a day job. So, like, 
how did you get your head around the idea of working in a or having Zapier own MakerPad? That feels like a real departure for your personality type. Like, yeah, no, I understand what, that. What, Definitely. Take me inside your head there. Well, I think probably I was sort of talked off the ledge by all the things I didn't want to do. And I was like, yeah. right, that is one path. Another path is trying to bootstrap. And I was very stressed at the time trying to figure out the business. So I was like, this is the bit I don't know what to do. I can start companies or start businesses or ideas. I don't know how to run them yet. So one of the things was, well, I've got Wade, this fantastic CEO who would be my CEO coach, essentially. Once a week, we just have a chat. That's how we talked about what bringing the two brands together would look like. We would stay our own Slack. We would do our own thing. We'd stay all of our own systems. They would essentially leave us alone. And all I would do is chat to Wade once a week. And we only had, I've only been onboarded with a Zapier uh, email it, like two weeks ago. So it has, like, we've left them intentionally separate. And that was a big you part of- a year ago? Yeah. So it was just over, uh, yeah, about 13 months now. So yeah, we didn't see the need to change from a 10-person company to a 500-person company. And Wade was very, very open with talking, talking that through with me and how that could look and okay, does that really mean I can just like make decisions myself? Does that really mean we can build anything we want? Does that really mean this, that, and the other? So I made sure that was part of like my diligence, I guess, in this deal was you hear about companies getting acquired and saying one thing and then another thing happening or them sort of being merged and, and uh, swallowed up. But yeah, I really trusted Wade and his approach and his demeanor about like how he's built Zapier, um, it's just been really impressive to me. And I thought, like, MakerPad cannot be in better hands than in Zapier and how likewise did, myself. How did Wade, and I, I wanted to come back to this issue, and I think this is a good time. How did Wade react when he learned such a high proportion of your customers were one-time lifetime memberships? Was that a conversation? Did that trigger a conversation around valuation or well, that's an obligation we now need to fulfill. It wasn't really anything with the valuation. And it wasn't, the thing with Zapier was that they weren't buying us for their for the revenue stream. Like they do very, very well. And they're quite open with some of their revenue numbers. And yeah, it wasn't like a- hundred million in ARR now yeah. is my understanding. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was that when we were acquired. So like- they're they're doing they're doing great. They don't need MakerPads extra 400k to like do any. That's not going to touch the sites with with Zapier. So it wasn't that discussion. Um, it was more a case of okay, what have they paid for, and like how does that change if we wanted to make decisions as a company, like to make stuff free or to open up a bit more or change what we did as a company. Did we ever? raise the specter of just doing it himself. Like, I mean, as you say, big company, we got lots of resources. They could have hired some people to create a bunch of video tutorials. No. Yeah. They, I mean, they have that themselves. Um, I think we just, we were the independent company. We sat in the middle. We were the Switzerland of no code. We were just 
Uh, we're happy to use all different tools and we talk about them equally. And that, I think, really helped us build a reputation in the space That's of trusted like a trusted voice. Like, yeah. Cause Zapier just... puts out a, a video all of a sudden it's, Oh yeah. Well, no God, it's Zapier. Yeah. Like they're trying to sell us her product. But when MakerPad does, there's that semblance of independence yeah. and we're kind of agnostic of, of tool. Interesting. So how did, yeah. how did it come up? How did you guys deal with the financial stuff? So like, did he ask you like, you know, what do you want for it? Cause clearly no, standard valuation technique is probably going to be appropriate here if they're not buying it based on revenue. Like how did you guys stick handle around the money stuff? Yeah. So basically I had listened to some of the episodes you did. And I remember, um, I think someone, I can't remember the name who's selling a company to GoDaddy, I think. Um, this is one of the, the WordPress hosting sites, I think. Um, one of the things on that episode was he wrote down a number and just left it at the front of his desk and then tried not to look at that number until sort of near the end when different things were happening in the negotiation. So I tried to say, right, okay, let me come up with a few numbers. So in my head, I'm benchmarking myself and thinking, okay, if it's worth this, am I happy with that decision? What would that look like for my life, for the situation? I would go be at Zapier. So considering all of that, so I had a spreadsheet with a, with a bunch of numbers on them, um, all just sort of plucked out that I just had different stages of everything, really. Um, and then I think I sort of pushed for or asked for, like, well, give me give me an offer then. So we got on a call and Wade set, up, set his offer and it wasn't really something I'd planned for. Like, it was one of those that I maybe thought we were going to be sold for less. Like I wasn't sure at what point we were going to get to. So I was like, that to me sounds like a great, great offer, but that's not what you say, or you're supposed to say in those negotiations. But it's one of those that I'm sure a lot of people think this in, in a acquisition process is like, Oh, I'm actually, my deal is probably different. Like I trust the CEO. So actually I'm just going to talk candidly about it with them. And we're going to just, we're friendly. Like we're, we're friends and we're going to be fine with it. Um, and, and maybe I sort of gave, didn't have a poker face or didn't have anything like that because we ended up staying at that number the whole time. Like that number never changed then. So it was a number I was definitely happy with. We tried to sort of come back and say, yeah, but that's the value. That's sort of the value on the business now. Like it's sort of stopping us from doing another year's worth of business, which we could do. And if we did it in one year's time, the value of the business could be this number, which is more than what you're offering. So it was one of those of that, like we're trying to push to the, the future valuation and Zapier was, was staying on. Yeah, but this is what we are purchasing now, essentially. So we stayed, we did stay around that number. And like I said, it was the number always is like a huge factor, but it was also part of that, that whole package of, can we stay independent? Can I run it? Can we do this? What does the day-to-day look like? And all of those things really, really were a, uh, a decision to be made. Got it. And, and for listeners who are like wondering, okay, Warlow, well, like, could you please ask him what the number was? <laughs> we talked before we hit record saying that Ben was unfortunately unable to share what the specific number is, despite my uh, best attempts at getting to share that. So, uh, so, but, but I appreciate that that is in a private 
transaction like this sometimes the case and, and totally respect that. So you had um, this spreadsheet of, of possible outcomes. These were numbers, like I'm going to just make up numbers. Okay. So if it was a million, would I be happy with that? If it was 2 million, right? Is that the kind of process yeah, you were going exactly through? That. Like, yeah, exactly. If it was 3 million, I would enable me to do X and Y. Would I be happy with that? And so you had all these different numbers and you yeah. arrived at, I'm assuming a threshold where you're like, yeah, if I could get that, I would be happy. Like I would be happy and I would, that would, that would, that would meet my criteria for a successful exit. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Cause I, I didn't want to go into the conversation about the number without actually having a, okay, well, I do have a cutoff at this end and this is the reason why I sort of wanted to have that whole process almost come up with that conversation in my head of why is it that number and why would it be a certain split and why would I do any of that sort of stuff? Um, so I wanted to be as prepared as possible. And like I said, listen to some interviews and reading the book and everything beforehand or during it, I was like, that's what a lot of people have talked about is saying, like having that like in their heads of I'm happy with this, not this. Yeah. So some people have, and we talk a little bit about this. Uh, we have a tool called the freedom point where we, we actually kind of zero in on this, uh, the, on this number. Some people think of it as, as sort of a minimum number. Like, you know, this is the minimum. I, I would never go below this. And then other people have sort of a dream number be like, that's the minimum. But man, like if I could get the dream number, it would be, it would be this. Did you have that? Did you yeah. have the the two? And so if I'm if I'm if I'm trying to understand correctly, so you had your dream number and your minimum number. What was the delta between the two? Like was the dream number double the it was probably yeah, five times what the minimum. So the dream number five. was like five times what the minimum. And then we ended up the offer ended up being somewhere within that. Got it. So you had the, the the minimum, you had the dream, and the offer sort of somewhere in the middle. So your your reaction to that was okay. Yeah. And it's because it's one of those that you hear these stories, or you read these blog posts of like someone comes in with a really, really like low number, and then you end up with this whole negotiation back and forth, back and forth. And it's not again, it's not probably something I'm any good at or have any experience in. So I really appreciated actually the number coming across and me and me being like that's that is a great offer and like i'm ready to i'm ready to accept that but i know that you don't just do that on that call and everything else you've mm. got to sort of think about it and consider everything um but it sort of took it took a big part of that acquisition process out of it where i imagine a lot of people get hung up and think oh yeah but they sort of stiffed me on a million here I really wish I did get that, but I didn't. And like, I think that that was a nice thing to avoid in this whole scenario, actually. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like you, you zig when everybody else zags anyways, in every part of <laughs> yeah. business life. So this is perfect that you're, that you chose to do it that way, which is great. Did you ever, I mean, as you rightly point out, it would be like picking between my parents, which I love that line, but, but there was a vested interest for a lot of companies to acquire you. It wasn't just Zapier. There was, uh, I think you mentioned a company called Airtable, which I, admittedly, I don't know anything about. There were a few others that that would have had a really good investment thesis to buy you. Did you ever think about shopping the company to multiple potential acquirers? I didn't. Well, I did actually, and I didn't want to. It was one of those where I thought I'd feel really 
like sort of you run the risk of pissing off your acquirer for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I felt that Wade and I had a very good relationship that I wouldn't want to tarnish that even if the sale didn't happen. So I was very much, I don't know, using that. Like if I went to Airtable or someone else and said, oh, like we've got an offer from Zapier, would you want to give us a counter offer? And we start like pegging them against each other. I just wouldn't feel right about it. Um, but another company was chatting to us about like a closer partnership. How do we get closer? And at that time I was like, well, we are in the process of being like having acquisition talks. So they came back with, okay, let's see what we can do. Um, but that was just the, it wasn't quite the right fit anyway. And I wasn't, I mean, I was always in, like in the Zapier deal. It was just a, I know they were having that conversation. So I thought if they're going to throw a number out, like it has to be now because we are having conversations with Zapier about this. So, and, and um, did they ultimately throw out a number? Yeah, they, they did. And I was just like, it's not like, no, we're not going to get to where we need to be for, for this to change did, any of my mind. Okay, great. So it was, it was, yeah, inferior. How did Zapier like structure the deal? Was it all cash or was it cash plus earnout, or did you get Zapier shares or like, how did you structure some of the bad stuff? Yeah, it was a cash and share, um, cash and share structure. So yeah, we so paid you off got cash and- plus Zapier shares. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I don't know the answer to this. Is Zapier privately held? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. And do you have some rights to sell that or do you only get to sort of liquidate the Zapier shares in the event that they choose to sell at some point? No, I think there's I think there's ways you can do it internally or the company buys them back and things like that. I haven't, I mean, it's not anything I've looked into. Um, but yeah, that's how, that's how I understand it is there's, there's events that would allow you to sell shares privately if you wanted to do so um but i mean i think it's one of those companies that i'd be shocked if there's no public offering at some point in the future um like disclaimer that i've got no insight into that whatsoever i've just completely um making that up but, just as a lay person you're yeah 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 i mean zapier was is one of those that also zigs when others zag they started like completely remote. So they've never had offices. They were a remote company from day one. They only raised, I think, $1.3 million from Y Combinator in their early inception and then didn't raise for a long time and just focused on profit. And then they raised, uh, I think, just before the acquisition from Sequoia and others in a bigger, bigger transaction. So they're sort of not focusing on the building a massive war chest because they're, they're, they've got a very good um, revenue generating product. Are you able to share roughly the proportion of cash versus stock, um, like the majority cash, the majority stock, like any, anything around that that you're able to share? Yes, yeah, so it's just a slight majority cash to stock. Got it. Got it. Got it. That's that's super helpful. And, and what about running MakerPad Long term was an, was there sort of an earnout component as well, or or are you now just sort of salaried on that front? No, yeah, just work? yeah, just salaried, and it's basically the share piece is is the incentive for um, mm-hmm. sticking around, I suppose, in a in a cruder way to put it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's we didn't do an earnout or anything like that. Um, How has it affected your motivation now that you've ticked the box of 
of wealth that you were hoping to take and using your dad's sort of same analogy, you, you, you're now an employee again, similar to the way you were at Product Hunt. How has it affected your motivation day to day? Well, I'm lucky in that I don't feel like an employee. Um, so that's been a big part of it. And I think one of the things after the acquisition was I want to hire an assistant personally for myself just because I don't like dealing with lots of things. And the person I ended up hiring is training to be a therapist for CEOs with stress, which I thought was very helpful. So we're sort of spending our days, we have a daily check-in and I, I'm trying to be really conscious of what things am I doing day to day? What do I like doing? What do I not like doing? How is that changing based on like a Zapier putting pressure on me to do this, that, and the other? And the answer is always no with that because that's not been any part of it. And if I go to Wade and say, I think this is what we want to do, he'll just say, oh, why is it you want to do that? Okay, great. You've, like, you're figuring that out you go and test it and you come back with how it goes. It's always, that's how our relationship has been whilst being part of Zapier. I think that's just, it's been a massive, massive help to feel like I can build these experiments. I can build this thing. We'll go out and test it. And there's not, there's no one in your way. There's no, like, we've got to run this through the Zapier team first. There's nothing like that, which has been very, very helpful. And again, it's my day to day is, flexible and structured the way that I if I want to go and play tennis in the morning I'll do that I'll walk a dog and then I'll start work at 11 like it's not it's not that structured clock in clock out stuff but that all is part of like Zapier as a culture so it's it's been very easy to go back into an employee actually a lot easier than I ever thought it would be yeah yeah. I'd love to get into a due diligence round. Are you up for a, a power, a, a very fast round of questions that we, re, we refer to as due diligence? Sure. Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, here we go. Uh, and I know you've had a lot of conversations with VCs, investors, uh, potential acquirers, as well as Wade. So when I ask this question, I'm not asking you to tell tales out of school about Wade per se, but if you think about the entire community of of acquirers that you've spoken with or investors you've spoken with, what's the slimiest trick you've, you've seen them try to pull over on you? The only thing is when people are trying to get a number out of you or sort of get a sense of like what you shouldn't be telling them, even if it's VC saying, okay, well, what about your, like this competitor? Or are they trying to say, I know a similar competitor to you that basically does this and you should do this. Or like it's sort of, air a bit of dirty laundry about other things they see from conversations they have with other founders. Um, maybe some stuff like that, but yeah. Biggest mistake you made during the selling process. Not carrying on running the business as it was before getting distracted by the process. What was the lowest point emotionally you reached during this process of selling your company? Probably within a week before the deal had to close, just the stress of it, the panic of it, the big change of it, and just pressures of questions and is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? That is, that was a tough, <laughs> a tough time. What was the highest point you reached in the exit process emotionally? When, I, when the documents came back signed two minutes before the deadline. 
<laughs> nice. What's one thing you wished you had known about the exit process before you'd started? To get yourself someone who can explain it like, like you're five years old, just having someone else who's invested in what you're trying to get done, who doesn't have the emotional attachment like you do. Was there a, and you already mentioned graciously and uh, I appreciate the, the acknowledgement that you did listen to the podcast and read the book. So that's fantastic. Were there other resources that you used to really, you know, inform yourself about the exit process, a book, an online course, uh, a speaker that you listened to? Is there anything you can point people to? Nothing particularly online. I don't think I did. Yeah. I read the book and there was another book similar. Um, I think, and really, I do you remember the name just, of the other books. It's, um, I cannot, uh, the messy marketplace, the messy marketplace. Okay. We can I link think to that. So. I think that's it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was lucky that my, my best friend actually is sort of helps companies sell and, um, get acquired and raise money. So it just so happened that those two things aligned and, he was just, we were on the phone every single day and I said, what's this mean? What's this mean? What's this mean? You figure that you out. You tell me. Pint, my friend. I've paid him already, actually. So. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Got it. So having that resource was helpful. Oh yeah. That was invaluable. Like, yeah, definitely. So he, he he's an M&A professional or investment banker. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Essentially. Great. Great. Um, what'd you buy yourself to celebrate the win? I want to hear trophies. Tell me you bought yourself something. I got an Aston Martin and a new house. Okay, good. I'm glad to hear you actually did something with the money. That's yeah. great. New house and an Aston Martin. Where I did so, is that the car your dad dreamt of? No, that's a car I've always had on my list. Yeah, that whole time. Nice, nice. Well, I uh, congratulations on both of those purchases, and I'm super Thank happy you. that you. Uh, that you made them for folks who want to reach out, um, maybe learn. We got a lot of, of, of makers that listen to this show, so they might be interested in maker pad. You want to point people to some resources or a place to find you online, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So MakerPad is M A K E R P A D.co. Um, we've got a course that's our free curriculum into no code. So it's all the basics, um, self-serve. So do it your own pace. And I'm on Twitter, mostly at, at Ben Tossel, B-E-N-T-O-S-S-E-L-L. Awesome. So we'll make all of those links up in the show notes at builttocell.com. Ben, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ben Tossel. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of the technical terms I referenced, visit the episode page, which can be found at builttocell.com. Don't forget to nominate a guest for the show. Some of our best guests, including Ben, came from someone who nominated them. You can nominate a guest at builttocell.com slash nominate. Thanks again to Christian Kuldea, who gave us a review on iTunes recently. Please go ahead and rate the show on whatever platform you listen to us on. That's always appreciated. Today's show was produced by Haley Parkhill. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio and video engineering as always. And thank you to the entire community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.